So, really, really interesting stuff here that we're gonna we're gonna dig into. Uh, before we do, I'm gonna, bounce, I'm, gonna, I'm gonna go out of order for just a second, and then we'll come back. I need you to I need you to get a sense of where we are in in Book of Mormon history because it will make sense with the with the two instances that we're going to talk about uh, today. Uh, you have to remember that, that what we're dealing with here is that Jacob we think is going to die somewhere around four four twenty one BC something like that. He's going to hand off to his son Enos. Uh, and his writing is going to be somewhere in that range, at least at the beginning. And then what happens here is that we're now about to, to experience the Nephite Dark Ages. We're going to walk, this is very, very similar to uh, first century uh, Christianity, where the apostles are starting to be killed off. The, the wild branches we were talking about last week begin to overcome the roots and begin to take over and... And uh, one of the writings of uh, one of the last kind of uh, brethren that we have is just as they were, the, the church was going into this great apostasy, was uh, um, Clement, uh, one of the early Christian fathers, who was baptized by Peter. And in his writings, he said the church, and he's describing first century Christianity. And his description of that first century Christianity, he said, it's, it's like uh, exploring a house in the dark. And, and people are fumbling around in the dark trying to get a different description of the building in the dark. And whoever you talk to has a different sense of it. He says, my advantage is I know the builder. I met, I met one of the builders of the house who warned me that this was coming and that said that this would be our experience. That's Jacob and Enos. Jacob and Enos are standing on this precipice as the church and the Nephites are about to plunge into this long, dark ages. Uh, and it won't really surface again until about 200 B.C. Zenith is going to take the people to go. King Noah and... Uh, Abinadi, or if you're new to the church, Abinabi. <laughs> it's about 148 B.C. And Mosiah and King Benjamin is about 124 B.C. The church, the, the, the first, this part of the uh, Book of Mormon is not in chronological order. And uh, keep that in mind because that will, that will bear something on what we're going to hear from King Benjamin. Uh, but that's that's really the timeline that we're looking at as we so so with Enos and Jacob, their discussion and what they're experiencing is going to be very much watching this slide down towards the abyss, and we're going to lose hundreds of years uh, with with all of these people. Does that make sense? Okay. So let, so now let's go to. So now we're going to get, so, so this is after, and you almost get a sense that he, he was almost going to put a capstone on his writings with uh, the allegory. And then this, so this almost ends up being like a postscript. 
uh, right at the end of his life because he has a profound experience that, that may, means a lot to him. Uh, now it came to pass, verse 1, after some years it passed away, there came a man among the people of Nephi whose name was Sherem. Now, Sherem is a bit of a mystery to us. Because first of all, let, let's remind ourselves, when we get to this stage, who are Nephites? Who are the Nephites? Followers of what Nephi taught, right? Who are the Lamanites? Anybody else? Who opposed the teachings of Nephi? Okay, we have these two groups. Okay? Sherem is going to come among the people of Nephi telling you that is he part of the Nephite group? No, he's not. Or if he was, he's been separated for a long time. We have this outsider that's coming in, but the interesting things about him, he's very knowledgeable, he's very skilled on the scriptures, and you're going to find out that he's a very hardcore Deuteronomist. He knows his law of Moses very, very, very well. But he's not a Lamanite, and he hasn't been around the Nephite clan very long, because he's going to be surprised by a couple of things. So the question is, who share him? The answer is, we have no idea. There are some ideas. Uh, some have suggested, as I look through kind of the ideas of BYU professors out there, there are some that believe that he was a, a Mulekite trader. Trader meaning trade goods and services. And that he was kind of almost like a hired gun for the, those that traded back and forth, the, the Chamber of Commerce. Because Jacob... Remember, was was preaching against don't don't be prideful and think you got to have multiple wives like David and Solomon to be righteous. And then the other thing he was preaching against was getting rich. So the question is: Is he kind of a hired gun by the Chamber of Commerce? Why don't you think he was a Nephite? Because he's coming among the Nephites. There's a sense that he's kind of an outsider coming in. So, so, in other words, he was part of the Mulekite, or he could have been part of the original Nephite family, but then separated himself out. And now he's coming in a bit as an outsider. Okay. Uh, my, my own sense is, as you listen to what he's doing, this is another one of those experiences. Remember when we were talking about Laman and Lemuel? And we get, and, and if you just read it straight as it is, you're going to think it's almost like a, like a uh, good guy, bad guy. Nephi's the guy in white. Laman and Lemuel are always the guys in black. Okay? Uh, and, and we have to, where we're try, we've been trying so hard, if you understand the, the role of the Deuteronomist in trying to protect the purity of the law of Moses according to their beliefs, then Laman and Lemuel begin to have a much more nuanced view of who they were because, at, the, at least at the beginning, I think they are then corrupted by it and they become murderous really by the end. But at the beginning of this, you get devout Jews trying to protect the Torah and the temple and, and our dad is weirding out and doing sacrifices in the wilderness and he's supposed to be doing it at the temple and, and uh, he's a false prophet according to Deuteronomy. We need to stone him because that's the rule. And that's going to come into play here in a second. And so we see Laman and Lemuel with a much more nuanced... And, and so, for instance, there are people that attack the church. Let's say that you are a, uh, 
you are a uh, very fervent believer and a Baptist minister in Plano or Allen. And you're attacking the church. Does that make him a bad guy? What does that say about him? They're what? They're zealous. He's protecting what he knows to be true. So even though his attacks may be painful in terms of you know talking to family members and stuff like that, in his heart of hearts, he's protecting. He fully believes what he's what he's after, and he could stand on a you know stack of Torahs and say what I'm doing is a good thing. You know what? And then there are some that I think maybe less so and they may be a little bit more territorial and so you get a whole wide range of you're exactly right. Because but I do believe that just because they are attacking us doesn't mean that their hearts are far from God. It may mean that in a very much heart of heart they're doing what they feel like needs to happen. Yeah. I think that is exactly solved, right? Yes. Good example. Right. He took all that zealous energy and just changed direction with where he was. Uh, I heard an interesting statement. You know, someone asked the the uh, definition of a liberal Mormon. What is a liberal Mormon? And uh, one explanation was a liberal Mormon is someone who would do exactly what God is doing if they had all the answers. They had the truth. That's kind of a fascinating idea. Okay? So what we're going to get, I think, with Sherem, here comes Sherem, and for wherever, wherever he's coming from, I believe, because of what he's about to do, that he's a very, very devout person. Now, um, we're going to find out that he began to preach. He declared that there would be no Christ. Now, I need to say this because we tend to say, well, we have three antichrists in the Book of Mormon. We're going to just cast this big wide net. Three antichrists. Sherem and Korahor and Nahor. Okay? Those are our antichrists. Don't do that. Don't do that. The, each one of their motivations are so dramatically different now, at the end of that, they're, they're preaching against Christ, but they're coming from three different directions, I believe. Okay, so, let, so keep sharing. Let's not just lump them together anymore that we lump people who attack the church in one lump of all bad guys because they're attacking the church. So are you saying that Sharon, how do you reconcile that last line of verse 4? Okay. According to the, if you look at, that's a good question. Um, he labored diligently to lead away the hearts of the people. And we could say, lead them away from the, the Christ teaching going on and lead them towards what? The Torah and the law of Moses. We're trying, it, it, for him, this is a re- reclamation project. I think that's that phrase he could use much flattery and power of speech is another way of saying he was charismatic. He's very charismatic. That's what we'd say today, but maybe they didn't have a word for it. Sure. So he was learned. Uh, that's one of the reasons why we know he's not just a Lamanite walking off the, you know. This is a guy very trained. Uh, perfect knowledge of the language, therefore he could use much flattery, the power of speech. According to the power of the devil. And because it's kind of a small d devil, there's a sense among a lot of scholars that 
this was an adversarial kind of thing, but also that the devil can use somebody like this to kind of twist things where he wants it to go. Okay. Now, there is going to be a devil's tactic here about how he's going to handle this problem. Now, it put, let, me, uh, let me put yourself in Sherem's position for a second. If you believe that it's all about that salvation comes by living the law of Moses and that you have to protect the purity of the law of Moses and you have to make sure that people are following exactly and not get pulled away to this Christ doctrine over here and you're going to walk into town, what is the best way to like bring this whole Christ doctrine down? Who are you going after? The head guy. If you're going to attack the Book of Mormon and you're going to attack the Mormon church, are you going to attack Bruce Jones? Who are you going to attack? Joseph Smith. So that's why you're seeing, we've got to go after the founder. If we can knock out the founder, or you can go after President Monson, but he seems like kind of a nice guy and everything. Let's go after the founder. If you can take out Joseph Smith and the Book of Mormon, then supposedly everything else crumbles after that. So what we're about to find here is that Sherem has a very particular focus and it is to go after Jacob and put Jacob on trial. Now there's reasons for that one. Number one is that if we can get Jacob, we bring the whole thing to its knees. But watch how he does this. That's why I say this is very kind of hardcore Deuteronomist. Uh, Jacob says, He hoped to shake me from the faith, notwithstanding many revelations and many things which I see. He doesn't understand what I, what I really know. And he came to me, verse 6, on this wise he did speak unto me, saying, Brother Jacob, you know, one religious guy to another, Brother Jacob, I have sought much opportunity that I might speak unto you, for I have heard and also know that thou goest about much preaching that which you call the gospel or the doctrine of Christ. Now, here they come. He's about to make <coughs> several uh, allegations. Let me, let me break it out this way. And, and you can still kind of go back to that verse. To, to verse 7. He says, you have led away much of this people that they pervert the right way of the Lord. <clears throat> now, if we go to Deuteronomy 24, it says, If there arise among you a prophet, saying, Let us go after other gods, which thou hast not known, and let us serve them, that prophet, or the dreamer of dreams, shall be put to death. Now, we, we oftentimes talk about Deuteronomus and their protection of the law of Moses. But let's not forget something. Did this people believe in the law of Moses? Did the Nephite? Yeah. Did they strictly observe the law of Moses? Absolutely they did. These are, these are law of Moses believers. Now, they understood it when you, when you layer on the doctrine of Christ... They understood, as Jacob would say in, in Jacob 4, it pointed our soul towards Christ. 
But it doesn't mean that they didn't live Passover, and that they didn't do Yom Kippur, and that they didn't do everything that they were supposed to be doing. So he's now he's now going into the heart. He's going into the Deuteronomic law and making an accusation against Jacob that you are leading them away after other gods, and the penalty to that is what death. If Sherem wins this impromptu court, the penalty to this is death. Now, is this a serious accusation? Let, let me pop out for a second here. Uh, let's go all the way to the bottom of 7, down to verse 23, after, after the dust settles here. And it came to pass that the peace and love of God was restored again among the people. How effective was Sherem's attack? It had destroyed the peace and it had interrupted the love of God. And it says, and they restored again among the people and they searched the scriptures and hearkened no more. Sherem was being really effective. Everything was in an uproar. Jacob is literally on trial here. And, and the stakes are really high because if he loses this, he's supposed to be put to death. So here's accusation number one. You have led the people away after other gods. As a side note, what charge was, was Jesus brought up on that actually resulted in his crucifixion? Blasphemy, which worked with the Jews. That's the next charge coming against Jacob, by the way. But with the Romans, what was the what was the charge? Because they had to switch. Because the Romans couldn't care less about blasphemy. But what they did care about was he was stirring up the people. And so the problem was treason stirring up against Caesar. When Joseph Smith at Carthage arrives at Carthage and they, and they meet with Governor Ford, uh, they swear out a writ of habeas corpus and Joseph is supposed to be released uh, on the charge of uh, destroying the press. So they're able to get out of that. Joseph is now supposed to be released and go back home to Nauvoo. So one of the Mormon descenders swears out another charge against Joseph, and this is the one that keeps him in Carthage jail. And that is what? He's stirring up the people. He's causing an uproar. It's this charge. And you remember that it was, um, uh, I think it was W.W. W. Phelps, who then after they take him to Carthage, they, they take Joseph to Carthage, Jail. W. W. Phelps goes back to Governor Ford and says, "And you have the Carthage Greys out here, and they're bloodthirsty. And I've heard them talking, and they're planning on killing him." And Governor Ford's response to that was, "It is better, isn't it better? I think his phrase is, isn't it better that one man should perish than entire? Yeah, think about phrases to Nephi." Um, isn't it better that one man should perish than the, than the uh, countryside be in an uproar? I think that's his phrase. 
Isn't it better that one man should perish than the entire countryside being in uproar? <coughs> this stirring up the people is a pretty heavy charge. Jacob's in good company. Okay, so there's problem number one. Um, now here comes charge number two. I share them, declare unto you that this is blasphemy. Leviticus 24. He that blasphemeth the name of the Lord, he shall surely be put to death, and all the congregation uh, shall certainly stone him. If I can't make number one stick, I've got number two. So even if we don't get that one, we can still stone him and kill Jacob based on number two. Okay? But wait, there's more. And no man knoweth of such things, for he cannot tell of things to come. Go back to the Deuteronomy 24, the dreamer of dreams, and given thee a sign and wonder, and the penalty for that is, he shall be put to death. Now remember, for, uh, for a Deuteronomist, where does Revelation come from? Scripture. The Scriptures. Who's going to interpret the Scripture? The sages, the rabbis. That's why it's a very legalistic. We're going to talk about, we need the wisdom of, um, remember in, in uh, Fiddler on the Roof, you know, is it proper to give a blessing to the czar? You know, we're going to go, we want, tell us. And here, here comes his inspired, sagic advice. Yeah. We believe in the past prophets. A Bible, a Bible, we have a Bible, and there will be no more prophets. What we believe now is that we have the scriptures and what the prophets wrote, and what we and then what we have is rabbis and sages who now interpret for us in the present. But we don't believe in future prophets because we have the law. Well, but the Messiah would be one, wouldn't necessarily come, he comes as a, as a, he's not bringing more knowledge from heaven, he's simply coming to fulfill the, the uh, law of Moses and be a military leader. That's why it's a military leader, not, so, so for them, there, there's no more ongoing revelation. Remember last time we were talking about the, the, uh, the allegory of the vineyard and the wild branches would come in and the wild branches were looking to heaven for moisture and the roots were looking to the ground. They're looking to the past. Well, that's, that's the, the Deuteronomist, the law of Moses. They're looking down. Okay. So, yeah, so Sherem is coming in and saying, we look to the past. The Bible says, the Torah says, there's no more future revelation. And anybody who teaches it, the penalty is death. Stone him. He's got him on three different points. And any, and any one point all by itself will result in Jacob's death. It's interesting that he had access to some type of scriptures. Absolutely. Yeah. And in, in fact, he's going to say... <laughs> uh, 
We know that he knew his scriptures, but he's going to tell us that he knew his scriptures. Where right. Uh, perfect knowledge, okay. uh, people... Because uh, the Lamanites were separated from the word of God. Oh, here it is, 10. Uh, and I said unto him, Believest thou the scriptures? He said, Yea. Uh, mm -hmm. I, I study the scriptures. I know my scriptures. This is a scriptorium. Mm -hmm. That's why I don't immediately say he's the same thing as Korahor or Nahor, because this is a very devout man who's done a lot of studying on him, but been deceived about what he's doing. Okay? Uh, so now from... Uh, so we know that Jacob is then going to start uh, questioning him. He's actually kind of defending himself. Believe us out of the scriptures, yay. 11, you don't understand them, for they truly testify of Christ. I say unto you that none of the prophets have written or prophesied, save they have spoken concerning this Christ. How can they have the scriptures again? Just a reminder. How could the old Jews have the scriptures in front of them and not see Christ in them? Number one, they were blind. They were blinded, and such blindness comes from looking beyond the mark. So, if it was very plain to them, a lot of times they would try and see more into it, see it more symbolic. But sometimes I think there—you can't miss some of the writings of Zenus and Zenoch and and those guys. And I think they they may not have had access to those. Yeah. You missed a really good discussion. <laughs> That they searched the scriptures and these guys compiled them. And yeah, Josiah. And, and dropped a lot of that Pulled that stuff out because it was too plain, or it might lead the the Baal worshippers might take this and do something with it, or something like that. So yeah, there was this great cleansing under Josiah. Okay, is the problem. Okay, so some of this have been removed, but even then, he's he's opening up scriptures. They all preach to them, and then this is not all. It's been made known unto me by the power of the Holy Ghost. We don't have the atonement, we'll be lost. Then he says, verse 13, And it came to pass that Sherem said unto me, Show me a sign by the power of the Holy Ghost in which ye know so much. Now, we have tended to look at that and go, Well, this is just a sign seeker. No, that's, that's not what this is. When, and when we talked... Let's go back just a little bit. Remember when we talked about um, Nephi and the boys going back to get the plates of Laban. And they're trying to figure out who is going to go in and actually confront Laban the first time. How do they decide who goes first? Lots. Remember the idea of lots. And it's done a couple of ways. Sometimes it's the short straw and the long straw. But a lot other times it was just it was a handful of sticks or a handful of rocks. And the idea with, with writing on them. And they would take the handful of lots and they would cast the lots. We're going to sit in a circle and we're going to throw it down almost like rolling dice. And we're going to throw it down and whoever the lot is pointing at is the one that gets to go. Now, isn't that, doesn't that look kind of random? It's just chance. 
Why would they do that and believe it was inspired? Yes, it's called God is in the court. That, that's, that's, the, that's the phrase. God is in the court. God will direct where the lot is supposed to go. And surprise, surprise, by the way, the lot falls to the oldest son. And it went exactly how it should have gone about who goes into C. Laban. Okay? God was in the court. God chose. So there was a belief that if you're going to have a court, God will tell you will be involved in the process of telling you who is right and who is wrong. So now, so, so let's come back here. If God is in the court, and it came to pass that Sharon said unto me, show me a sign by the power of the Holy Ghost in which you know so much. What is it that he's believing is going to happen here? Well, number one, of course, that they're going to fail. Yes, I don't think the Holy Ghost is mentioned in the Old Testament at all. And therefore, yep. Yep. the Holy Ghost to him is another God. And so he's daring to go to this other God and say, you know, let him do it. Yeah. Kind of like in life. Yeah, this is a lot like that. This is a lot like a Good point. Uh, because if, uh, if our God, who is one God, Deuteronomy 6, is we're going to have to be so focused on that one God, anything outside of that is blasphemous. But he also is going to believe that God will certainly either give us a... If you think it's so good, if your God is going to do that, he'll send you a sign and we will know. But I know that's not going to happen. I don't have any... Real knowledge of the Christ doctrine, really. I really know my Deuteronomy, but I don't know this. I don't have any expectation that God is going to make known unto all these people that Jerem's, or that uh, Jacob's in the right. I think it's a total shock for him. Okay? So he speaks unto him, uh, power of these words that came upon him, he falls to the earth. He was nourished for the space of many days. I'm going to die. Therefore I desire to speak unto this people I shall die. And it came to pass the multitude gathered together. Um, and then, then he finally, after all of this, he's had many days now to say, Oh, I've been deceived by the devil. Now, this is fascinating. He's going to speak of them of death and of eternity and eternal Punishment. Now, look at 19. Let me give you one other idea just how well trained Sherem is. 19. Guess what he does here. Let me flip over here. Let's see. We talked about that. Sherem's confession is in Hebraic poetry. It's in chiasmus. It is the parallelism of that, that Hebrew writers write. He's got a few days to know he's dying. He's going to write out his confession and he does it in Hebraic poetry. That's, it's not just like my last will and testament, I'm told, see ya. I fear I've committed the unpardonable sin. 
I've lied unto God. I've denied the Christ. All this, this knowledge, he's had all this time to really begin to understand what he's done. I said that I believe the scriptures, and they truly testify of him. And because I have thus lied unto God, I greatly fear my case, but I confess unto God. And he does it in poetry. I think that's, I think that's remarkable. And that he's skidding the entire flow of everything that he has been blind, looking beyond the mark. Um, it, it's like Nephi used to say of the, of the boys, they know, but they would not know. They have some knowledge, but they tend to look past the plainness because they want the mysterious. He was guilty of exactly what he was accusing Jacob of. Yeah. In other words, I have committed the unpardonable. I should, I should be, I should be killed. I blasphemy, I blasphemy me. I done did it. Yeah, so I should die. You should actually stone me. Don't wait, don't wait for me to just croak. Stone me. I'm just curious. Do you think it's possible that that maybe, like you said, he he was zealous in what he believed, and he truly didn't understand all of it until he was. Yeah. Because that verse said he was nourished. That doesn't necessarily mean by. Alma the Younger. Think about how fast during that conversion process they know they've been taught, they're just ignoring it, they tend to see it otherwise. But when it's when the light is really there, and now suddenly they really see it and they really understand it, yeah, it just brings them right to their knees. This is I see this like an Alma the Younger almost kind of thing, but it's a bit late for him. Satan works. He, I mean, he doesn't just tempt evil people. He mis mis. He misguides, misguides good good intent, well intentioned people, but they're still misguided nonetheless. When and that's what that that shock that comes to them when they finally put it all together. Okay, does that, does that make sense? Um, let me do one last thing here. We we're talking about this earlier. The one that has caused endless grief for, for so many uh, people attacking the church. I, Jacob, saw that I must go down to my grave. 27, take these plates. I, my brother Nephi commanded me. I promise obedience to the command. I make an end of writing these things upon the plate. My writing has been small. To the reader I bid farewell, hoping that many of my brethren shall read my words. Brethren, adieu. Alright. Where did the where did the yeah, where did where did the French suddenly show up in the Book of Mormon? Brethren adieu. It, it, we probably had the same reaction being Brethren Avidazain. What? What 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 does this tell us? It probably showed up during the Norman conquest. Yeah. Adieu. Yeah. And me? Yeah. In here? Well, the book wasn't written in English because it 
begin with, right? interpreting it in today's language. And so specifically, whose language? The language at that time that it translated as English. Yeah. I, I was reading, and there is a Latin word that has the same meaning there is. as the dude. And it's not just goodbye, it's also giving a blessing. So, so we have this, we have this, whatever word that jo, that Jacob was using, and it, and, we, and we're talking earlier about shalom. Shalom means hello, goodbye, peace. It means a lot of things, and we get this entire word, and it means so many things that maybe there wasn't an English equivalent to a, a do. Um, in the same way that William Tinsdale was trying to say reconciliation. There isn't an English word that really conveys the power. So let me create a word. Atonement. Atonement to try and fully convey what this means. I think you do is that. There's a phrase here that Jacob is using and there wasn't an English equivalent to say what a do says. Some of you who understand, read French, will probably understand that better. Yeah. I do have been in the English language far long before Joseph Smith lived. If you've ever read Shakespeare, a do, a do, and again a do. It's it's like recipe and banquet and things like that that we think are English, but they're really coming out. You know, the fascinating thing I will say this without I don't want to get too um, um, we we're we're at a, we're at an interesting point right now in, in Book of Mormon scholarship in that. Uh, Royal Skousen at BYU has just completed the uh, Joseph Smith original manuscript project. And part of that was being able to look at the original manuscript and now, now be able to search it as a database. It's all been digitized so that we can look at it. And they start taking a look at the actual language of the Book of Mormon. And the belief is that the Book of Mormon, if it is Joseph Smith's words, Totally, the the language and the phrases and everything should match the eight, the early eighteen hundreds, and we should find all kinds of phrases in the Book of Mormon that match the verbiage of the day. So they're actually being able to do word searches against other things that were written, especially in upstate New York, and match that against what Joseph Smith, the words he's using in the Book of Mormon, and it should, and then do a word search. How many? It, and often it shows up, then they can graph it and everything and say, yes, this seems to be 18th, 19th century speech. And guess what? The Book of Mormon ain't. It's not. It's, it's 15th, 16th century speech. They're finding far, far more correlations to 15th century than 18th century, 19th century. Meaning that it's much older it's wherever those, those, that, those Bibles came from in their language going forward. And that's just within the last year that we're really completing this and just seeing this really... And it's pretty awesome research, by the way. Yeah? I was just going to say that in the, in the use of a do, it, it seems to me like he wanted to say something more... Um, that, that sounded more almost sorrowful yeah. than goodbye. You know, it's a do... Well, we are wanderers in a strange land, and, and, and we have lived out our kind of a dreary existence. He's pretty wistful at the end. This ain't going well. And I think part of what's driving this, by the way, is he's watching, despite all their energy and effort, they're watching the people slide into wickedness. I think that's part of, 
A, a prophet would just mourn at watching his people get more wicked. Is my own belief. Yeah. Does it mean go with, oh, mean go with God? I like that. I like that. Yeah. Maybe my interpretation is a little simplistic, but as Joseph Smith was receiving revelation and the words were coming to him, the Lord gave him that word. And yeah, he, he did. There's no question that he got this from the from the Lord. Um, but we want to. But again, uh, that there wasn't an English equivalent that we, he was being given. Because we don't even have an idea how well he knew Shakespeare or English. I mean, come on, he's pretty young and he's pretty uneducated. Well, that was my thought. They do find words that fit in more 18th century rather than 15th. If the thoughts came to his mind, but he's the one who phrased the sentence or the word, that still fits to me within. Yeah, what he's trying to do. Okay. Let's move forward. We've got a half hour. And we have some ground to cover here. All right. Um, now, before we move on to Enos, I, I, I want to take a look at something for a second. Um, in fact, let's go ahead and hop over to Enos. Behold, it came to pass that I, Enos, Knowing my father was a just man, and he taught me in his language. Okay, stop. What language is this? What language? What language or languages would Enos need to know? The Hebrew and the Egyptian. He would need to know the Hebrew the and the Egyptian. Why? For the scripture. For the for the plates. Mm-hmm. Sure, absolutely. Okay, so it's not necessarily that they're running around speaking Egyptian. To each other, and in fact, we know that their language is changing over time. It's probably the influence of uh, probably the, the the Mayan, the indigenous stuff is probably mixing with it at this point. But if you're going to be a prophet and you're going to have the scriptures, you're going to have to know this stuff. It's a little bit like the Catholic priests who would have to speak English, but they had to learn Latin so that they could read the scriptures. Well, you we got to be able to read the scriptures. Okay, so now let, let me assume that you are a you're a, a boy and you're being taught uh, this so that you can read the scriptures and it's in front of you and now you're going to start reading the scriptures and your father's name is Jacob. What part of the Old Testament might you be interested in if your father's name is Jacob? <laughs> Does that make sense? Yeah. What, it seemed like that would be natural. You just want you just want to go and read up on it and search that. And, uh, and we're going to find, I believe, that in Enos's experience and what he's writing for us here, he, he in, in about 20 different ways, he wants us to see Enos, but he wants us to understand it through the eyes of Jacob. Ancient Jacob. Because the parallels are startling. And if you understand Jacob, you'll understand what Enos is saying in his own life. Okay? So let's do that. I want to go to uh, Genesis 32. We'll hop over here to Genesis 32. Now, let's just remind ourselves real quick. 
We have Jacob, and when he's born, he, he's born along with who? Esau. We got Jacob and Esau. Remember this whole story? And, and Jacob uh, is the tiller of ground, and Esau is the hunter. Okay? And remember how mom, you know, mom's going to put the hairy arms on the Jacob, and so he's going to get the birthright. And, and, you know, we get all this kind of stuff, and then Esau's going to be upset. So then what, what does Jacob do? He's got to get out. He's got to head off into the wilderness. So then Jacob goes off into the wilderness and he falls in love with Rachel. And then there's Leah. And then we get all of that stuff. And then, and then before long, he's out. He's away from home, but he's got 12 kids and four wives and lots of goats and sheep and stuff. And he's just a rich guy. And, and dad, father-in-law hates for him to leave because everything he touches turns to gold, but he wants to go home. So he's going back home with his wives and with his kids and with his stuff. And he's heading back home. But there's one big problem, and that is Esau. He has a brother that wants to kill him. Why? Because he stole the birthright. Keep thinking Nephi, Laman, and Lemuel. He's trying to go home, but he's got a brother. brothers. He's got a brother that believes that he stole the birthright and wants to kill him. But he's going. But God says, "Go home." Okay, but Esau wants to kill me. I know. God says, "Go home." So I'll go home. Okay. If he kills him, how will that benefit him? Will Esau. Well, yeah, he would get all of the. If if that son is dead, then. That's right, and then that next son takes over. So he would get the birthright back if he could kill Jacob. Okay? So here comes Jacob. Remember the story. One of the, one of the real touching stories, I think, in, in the Old Testament. I love this story. Uh, and so Jacob is going to travel back, uh, and he sends all kinds of peace offerings to Esau. We're coming back, but let me send you like hundreds of goats. Don't kill us. Let me send you sheep. Don't kill us. Okay? Uh, so they're traveling. I have oxen, asses, flocks, men, servants, women, servants. I've sent them to the mind, Lord, that I may find grace in thy sight. Be nice to me. Verse 6. And the messengers returned to Jacob, saying, Hey, we came to thy brother Esau, and he, he cometh to meet thee, and 400 men with him. Oh, shoot. <laughs> it's my worst fears realized. He's coming with 400 guys. We're toast. Okay? And Jacob was greatly afraid and distressed, and he divided the people that was with him and the flocks and the herds and the camels into two bands. And, there, the, and then he says, If Esau come to one company and smite it, then the other company which is left shall escape. At least he'll only wipe out half the other one. You know? Six of the boys get to head off somewhere else. Okay? Uh, and then he starts praying. Oh, God of Abraham, my father Isaac, you said unto me, return to this country. He's showing up with 400 guys. But I'm not worthy, at least, of all these mercies and truth that was showed me with my servant I pass over. I become two bands. Deliver me, I pray thee, from the hand of my brother from the hand of Esau, for I fear him lest he will come and smite me and the mother with the children. Okay? 
So, he's going to give some reassurances here. He's still pretty nervous. He's going to send out another 200 she-goats and 20 he-goats and, you know, and all this stuff, okay? And it's not working. He's still pretty nervous. 21. So the present, uh, present over before him, he lodged himself that night in the company. He rose up that night. He took his two wives and his two women servants and his eleven sons and passed over the ford. And he took them and he sent them to the brook and said, so he's going to send the rest of the family over the river and he's going to now be all by himself to pray and plead with God that he will be saved and preserved from the hand of his brother who wants to kill him and steal back the birthright. And we know this story now, right? And Jacob was left alone. And there wrestled a man with him until the breaking of day. He's going to wrestle all night. Now, the, 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 I looked up the, the Hebrew word wrestle. And, and it's pretty fascinating. The root word to this actually means a drifting up of dust. Think of ancient wrestling like we're going to get into the dirt and, and it's going to be a dust-up is the, is the old phrase. We're, we're, we're battling, we're wrestling, and the dust comes flying all over the place because we're rolling around in the dirt. It's a dust-up. And I'm going to wrestle. Wrestle for what? What is, what is Jacob wrestling for? A blessing. A blessing and reassurance. And do we believe that, you know, he, he's not wrestling with Jehovah. He doesn't have a physical body, but maybe an angel. May, maybe this is figurative, I, but you get some sense of physicality with it. But you get this all-night wrestle that he has. Now, the phrase, when he saw that he prevailed not against him, he touched the hollow, the angel did Prevailed not against him. He touched the hollow of his thigh and the hollow of Jacob's thigh was out of joint as he wrestled with him. Now, okay, so his, if literally he's saying his leg was like knocked out of socket. And he actually is going to kind of be limping around when he finally meets Esau. <laughs> okay, it was a rough night. <laughs> okay. But at that same time though, you have... This phrase, he's going to take his hand and it's going to, he's holding on to the thigh of Jacob on the inside of his thigh. Why is that significant? Say that again, Deb. It was a way that they made covenants. Yes. If I'm going to make a covenant with you, I'm going to swear on your thigh kind of thing because this is where your posterity is coming from. That's a that's a sign that it's like swearing on a Bible by swearing on your thigh that is an ancient covenant. And that makes sense. This isn't just a slip of, it could have been his arm socket or something like that. No, this is a very significant thing. Meaning that Jacob wrestled with him and would not let go until he got what? The covenant. The promises. And now, <coughs> hark on, connect this to the temple. He's going to make sure that he gets the covenant and he's going to stay focused on it till he gets it and he makes promises and God makes promises to him. And 
and uh, 26. Uh, let me go for the day breaketh. And Jacob says, I won't let thee go unless thou bless me. And he said unto him, what is thy name? And he said, Jacob. And he said, thy name shall be called no more Jacob. Based on the covenant that you get, I will now give you a new name. And that's what always happens when covenant making of this level happens. There was your earth name. Now let me give you your covenant name. What is your name? Jacob. No, no more. From hereafter, I will name you Israel. Meaning, that was prevailed. That was prevailed. Now, how many Israels do we have in here? All of us. And how did we get to be Israels? How did we get to be Israels? We wrestle. <laughs> we, we hold on tightly until we get the promised covenant. We don't let go. We hang on to rods. We hang on to covenants. We hang on to promises. We hold on with hope. And we hold on till the promised covenant is given. And then we get a new name and a new charge and the promises of land and prosperity. That's, that's what happens here. That's what Jacob's doing in this setting. Okay? Yeah. But, yeah. Yeah, and, right. And this is a this is a name that goes along with what they were doing there, but not necessarily a sacred name. That right. But it's also it also goes parallel. Remember, we talked about that the, the, this this pattern of kings in, in Israel means I may be born of one name, but when I am when I become king, I take on a different name. It's my kingly name. I don't believe that Benjamin was the original. His it wasn't his birth name. When we get to Benjamin, we'll tell you where I, I think Benjamin comes from. And by the way, the C Catholic Church adopted that tradition from early on saying, doesn't matter what this man's name was when he's born, when he becomes Pope, what does he do? He takes on a new name that is symbolic of his new covenant and new commitment. That is rooted in all of this. Yeah. I was just going to say that I mean, the obvious covenant is the covenant of baptism. And we get a new name. And we get, get a new name. Perfect. And in fact, again, we're, we're going to see that again in, with King Benjamin, where he's going to talk about, now that you've made the covenant, now I'll give you a new name that can't be wiped out. It's the name of Christ. Yeah? New names come with covenants. So is that similar then? You taught, you taught us that the 12 tribes and the tribes are, the names of the tribes are based on their basically assignments or their yeah, responsibilities. Right. So as we as our responsibilities change, not not today, but in their their days, you know, he, he now as Israel has taken a new responsibility. Yeah. Is, is that kind of? I you know I I hadn't thought of that, but I like that a lot. That if you're if you go to a patriarch and you are assigned a tribe, mm -hmm. and that's what uh, that's what our, our patriarch is very clear about that you have the blood of all the tribes in you. But when you get a patriarchal blessing, you are assigned a tribe, and the name of that tribe also tells you what your responsibilities are in the world. And for most of us, that means your assignment is as Ephraimites, to do what Ephraim was supposed to do. So in a sense, we've taken on a covenant name. I, I like that a lot, that we're, we're assigned to do what Ephraim is supposed to do. And Ephraim is the, is the, the, the 12... 
the 12 oxen underneath the, the baptismal font supposed to go to all four corners of the world and gather Israel in. Remember, uh, Elders Wick on Wednesday night talking to us and he says, and he starts to talk and he goes, this is the first time I've thought about this. He says, we talk about the, wow, there, he says there's the, the spirit of Elijah, but there's also the spirit of Moses. Oh, yeah. And then he goes, and let's talk about the spirit of Moses and the, and the responsibility of Moses. And he goes back to section 110 of the Doctrine and Covenants and says that Moses is supposed to go gather Israel in. Okay, supposed to bring them home. I think it's kind of a cool concept. Okay, well, in a sense, that's what Jacob is doing. Uh, and then Jacob finally is going to say, uh, and as I leave this place, I'll call the name Peniel, or Peniel, for I have seen God face to face and my life is preserved in this place. Okay. All right, so we got, we've got that story in hand. You see it top to bottom? Okay. Now let's go see Enos and see how many of these things line up because it was meant, I believe, by Enos that we see this story in his experience. Enos is going to go out and, and what's he doing in the wilderness all alone? He's hunting. Hugh Nibley used to say, maybe he hunted too much and he was feeling guilty about how much he was hunting instead of preaching the gospel. Uh, interesting thought. Hugh Nibley would do that. But, so he, in this case, he's the hunter. So he's touching on this idea that I'm, maybe this is like the, the Esau part of me that is out here doing it. He's alone. Uh, I will tell, but he says, but I'm going to tell you of the wrestle, of the dust up that I had with God, as did, as did my ancient father Jacob. It's, and, and, I, and, and if that's the case, then what is his wrestle for? What is he after? The covenant. The promises of the fathers. See it through Jacob's eyes. That's what he's after. I want, I want covenants and I want promises. And he's going to have some specific... He's got a, he's got a list of things that he's really going to wrestle God for. Okay? First of all, it's the wrestle of his own sins. I get that one. I don't think we should ever read into this that he was a very that he was a wicked man, and this is this is like a brother of, or a, a Alma the younger moment. You just don't get that sense that he was wicked. This is he was a he was he was wrestling with his sins as was ancient Jacob. This is only by wretched men. This is all wretched men. Yes, exactly right. Mm -hmm. Before I received a remission of my sins, I went to hunt bees. Uh, he's going to remember everything he's thinking about. Uh, eternal life and the joy of the saints and it sinks deep in his soul. And listen to this wor these words he uses. I, my soul hungered. If we want a blueprint for prayer, oh my gosh. And you're trying to seek from God an answer or reassurances in your life. My soul hungered and I kneeled before him and I cried. I almost made a, a slide with all the lists of the descriptors he's doing. I hungered, I kneeled, I cried, uh, I raised my voice. Um, and, and a voice came unto me saying, Enos, thy sins are forgiven thee, thou shalt be blessed. And then even the terminology, I like, if you think about the dust, it, it, rising up kind of thing. Uh, I, Enos, 
knew that God could not lie, therefore my guilt was swept away. It, it was cleansed. You just get this whole imagery that I think is fantastic. Okay. Oh, Lord, how's it done? Because of thy faith. Now, in the, uh, in the, and, and by the way, at the end of this, he's going to say, I'll go, all the, go all the way down to the bottom, uh, I know, kind of like my father Jacob, verse 27, uh, I will rejoice in the day my mortal will put on immortality, then shall I see his face with pleasure. I will have my own pineal, my own face-to-face experience with him. Okay, we have 10 minutes. I want to make sure that I got to this one. Um, I've joked before that whenever I go to Education Week, I need to, uh, and I'm this month I'm supposed to put together my classes again for August, uh, I need to call uh, Michael Wilcox because whenever I choose classes to teach at Education Week, Michael Wilcox is already put together the same set of classes and, the, and, and with a beautiful eloquence. Uh, that's a little intimidating. But I'm going to steal from his stuff today. And then I'll go back to duplicating what Michael Wilcox is going to do in August. In August. Okay. Uh, now it came to pass that when I'd heard these words, I began to feel a desire. Here comes his, here's, here's some of the promises he wants. Okay. I began to feel a desire for the welfare of my brethren, the Nephites. I'm watching them slide no matter what we're doing. We can't get them to repent and make it stick. Wherefore I did pour out my whole soul unto God. It's the idea of pouring that I want to leave you with today. Pouring. When you... If, if I give you a picture and it's filled with stuff, and you pour it, what are you doing? You're emptying what's in it so that you can put something else back in it. We pour out stuff, and then we refill it. Now, if you're going to pray, what are you pouring out? What should you be pouring out? What should pour out of... What's in you that should be poured out of you? Thankfulness. Thankfulness. Well, But what happens, though, President, if, if we're so filled with other stuff that there's no room to put the thankfulness in? What do we first of all have to do? We've got to cleanse. We have to pour out what's in it first so that we have room to put the gratitude and thankfulness in us. Does that make sense? So first of all, what have we got to pour out? Sins, guilt, doubt, frustration, anger, our will. We've got to pour our will out. How about pour out grief? Pour out hurt? Because I think there are a lot of times He would love to fill us with blessings, but there's no room in us for it until we do what? Pour out. Let, let, let me give you two fast examples here. I wish we had time to go over more. I'm hopping over here to 1 Samuel 1. And Hannah. Dear Hannah. Okay? And Hannah is... Uh, she's got a problem. She is like all great matriarchs in the Old Testament. What's Hannah's problem? 
She's barren. You know, Israel is always barren. And these women are the symbolic sense of a barrenness that is in them and, and the fruit of their loins. Uh, all, it requires uh, godly intervention to get, grant a blessing. But they're always barren for a while. Okay, and we can spend a long time on that one. Okay? Uh, but unto Hannah, he gave a worthy portion. His, his, her husband did. He loved Hannah. But the Lord had shut up her womb. Uh, her adversary, I think it's her own doubts and fears and stuff, had provoked her sore, made her fret. Uh, uh, year by year, she went to the house of the Lord. Uh, so these doubts and fears provoked her. She wept. She didn't eat. She's going anorexic on us. She's grieving heavy, you know, and, and her husband says, why weepest thou? Why, why are they grief? Am I not better than ten sons? You know, you have me. <laughs> Aren't I better than ten kids? <laughs> uh, <laughs> no, you snored. Uh, am I better than ten sons? She rose up after they had eaten, they had drunk. And then she goes to the temple. She takes all this pain to the temple. And, and Eli the priest sat there. And she was in bitterness of soul and prayed unto the Lord and wept sore and vowed a vow. And now she's, she's trying to make covenants with him. Uh, don't forget me. If I have a son, he'll be yours. And Eli goes, you look kind of drunk. How long, 14, how long have you been drunk? Put wine and wine. She says, no, my Lord, I'm a woman of a sorrowful spirit. She's filled with this sorrow. Um, I have drunk neither wine nor strong drink, but I have poured out my soul. What's she pouring out? The sorrow, the grief, the loss, the doubts of what... My righteousness is in doubt here because I'm not having kids... She's pouring all of this stuff out before the Lord. Uh, Count not thy handwoman a daughter. Of I'm, not a, I'm not an idol worshiper. But out of abundance of my complaint and grief have I spoken. She's, she's filled with this stuff. And, and, and what she's going to do, I'm, I'm going to pour all this out. And then, uh, 17, Eli answers and says, Go in. Now that you've poured it out, now what can I fill you with? Peace. Go in peace. Uh, the God of Israel, grant thy petition. You have wrestled long with this. You have poured it out. So first we wrestle. Then we pour. That's what we're doing while we're wrestling. Uh, grant unto thee a petition uh, thou hast asked of him. You, you're going to get what you asked for. And she said... Uh, so she's so comforted by that. So the woman went her way and did eat. She's now taking in the stuff that she needs. But she had to pour out first. You love those two stuff. These little things about her eating and not eating and then eating. I think it fits with the pouring. She had to empty out the, the painful stuff, bring in what she needed. Yeah. Was she fasting also? She was. And I, but I think that's part of what we do. Maybe fasting is part of clearing us out. So that we can then be filled with the stuff that we need. There's a physicality there again that I like. Okay. Can this be the first instance of when someone was angry? I think, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> she was after she ate, she was no more 
She, she was no more hangry, yeah. Okay. Let, let me do one more. We got about three minutes. Um, let's go over to Alma 34, 26. I want to get one more in here. In Alma 34, and I think this is to Corian. Oh no, this is when he's still preaching. Anyway. You teach them how to pray, cry over everything, the devil, the crops, the flocks. 26. But this is not all. You must pour out your soul in, the, in your closets. Three places. Pour, pour out your soul. Empty the stuff that's in there in the closets and in your secret places. And, and think about the times that were there. And where? In your wilderness. Pour it out in your closet and your secret place and in the wilderness. Pour that out. Empty yourself of the stuff that's in. I think the, the interesting thing is the word. It doesn't say in the wilderness. In your wilderness. Isn't that great? Isn't that perfect? That Those moments we feel like we're wandering around in the wilderness and we're pouring stuff out. And then he says, Yay, and when thou... And when you do not cry to the Lord, let your hearts be full. If you will pour out the bitterness and the anger and the pain and the mistrust, I will then fill you with what? Peace. Draw you out in prayer for the wealth, for your welfare, and also for the welfare of those around you. I will fill you with a promise that I will... Uh, Cover, I will take care of the people that you love. Because in a sense, we'll finish with that. Isn't that where Enos is going with this? Back to Enos. He pours out his whole soul uh, and as soon as he gets that, then he starts to pray for his family and for the Nephites. And then who's he going to pray for? The Lamanites. To make sure that they won't be completely lost. So let me finish with this. I, I, I believe if you look at Enos through the eyes of ancient Jacob, you get this sense of wrestling. And when you wrestle, that means you're pouring out your heart. And sometimes the question has been asked, why do we pray to a God who already knows what we need? Why are we asking Him for stuff or telling Him stuff and He already knows us better than we know ourselves? What exactly, why are we dumping this stuff on Him? Is for our benefit. And what are we doing? We're pouring out. We are pouring out the stuff that we have been holding. Pain, grief, hurt, sadness, doubts, fears. We have to pour that stuff out in prayer so that He can then fill us with peace and love and blessings and gratitude and the Holy Ghost and reassurances and covenants. I will bless you I will bless those that around you and I will take care of them, but I will fill you with the reassurance that I will do that. That's why we pray. We pour out while we wrestle. I was just going to say, her prayers was an were answered according to what she was pouring out. It was given to her, but that's not always how it happens with us. Sometimes then we thought it knows better. Yeah. And... See, sometimes we're pouring out 
this, is, this hurts, Heavenly Father. I'm lost. I'm hurting. I don't know what to do. I'm, I'm concerned. I'm afraid. I'm, we were pouring that out. And He will fill us with peace. He may not, not always give us an immediate answer along with that, but at least if we get that reassurance that He's in charge, then we get that peaceful comfortness. Um, I, I got that in state conference when I saw that when I saw the three brethren come up, and I just I was filled with that sense of peace and said, "Yes, yes, the Lord is in charge, and these are they. This is exactly their time with what we need and their skills and their talents." Yes, and I was filled with peace. It was very very comforting. Brothers and sisters, that's our job. We need to wrestle. And then we need to pour out and then allow ourselves to be filled. Pretty simple concept. And I think we see that in Enos. And I leave that with you in Jesus' name. Amen.